Hi, I'm Dr. Gil Wilshire. I'm a board-certified physician, surgeon, and reproductive endocrinologist. Welcome to my series of podcasts where we discuss medical matters that matter to you. I'll be interviewing top experts in their fields, and we'll also be delving into fascinating backstories from deep within the world of medicine. Welcome to the Dr. Gill Show. This is where we talk about medical matters that matter to you. Our guest today is Dr. Joel Shanker. Joel, welcome to the show. Thanks. I've really been looking forward to talking to you and meeting you. I've known you for a number of years here in Columbia, Missouri. I've uh, witnessed, I've been uh, able to listen to some of your lectures, always found them uh, very valuable. And I'm hoping we can talk about the subject of neurology today for the benefit of our audience. Looking forward? I really did enjoy the teaching I did when I was at the University of Illinois. I really like the idea of being able to help people who are trying to learn, yeah. which, as, as you, I think, would agree, that's a big part of what physicians do. The word doctor comes from a Latin word. I don't remember exactly how it's pronounced, docere, docere, oh, right. but it means to teach. To teach, right? right. And so the main thing we're doing as physicians is we are helping a person understand, well, here's, you have these complaints, you have these symptoms, you have these findings. Here's what they mean. I'm going to teach you. Here's what they mean. And I'm going to teach you, here's what can be done about this. To right. some extent, physicians also have some clinical skills to do things, to do the doing. Right. But a lot of it, and a huge amount of it, is just pe helping people understand what's going on. Yeah. And I realized early on, and I don't quite know why, but I really liked it when I was with people that wanted to learn something. Yeah, it's if very could, rewarding. If, if I could help them understand a thing from a certain yeah. point of view, that aha moment, that sense of discovery. This is why stories are so fun and so interesting as we were discussing yes. before. Because you learn things from stories. Yes, and that's you, how human traditions have a, been passed down gosh, forever. Since we were cavemen. Right, since Sitting cavemen, around yes. a, a cave telling stories. Yes. Right? So I really enjoyed doing that. And... There are all kinds of good things that a person can do in a career like you and I have had. And it includes taking care of patients and providing care one-on-one. -on -one. It includes getting involved with things like research. It includes doing administrative work. But the thing that has always jazzed me the most was the opportunity to share, to drive conversation, to get an understanding, and to teach. So when I came, when you and I first knew each other, it was when I came to Columbia in 2005. Yeah, I, had, I came 2006. We're yeah, contemporary. So we were, we were coming to town around the same time. Yep. And I was trying to figure out how I could put all this together. When I first came to Columbia, I joined a private practice, a neurology group here in town, which was then called Neurology Inc. They've changed their name to the Neural, now Neurology Institute. Um, and it was a good practice with good neurologists who really knew what they were doing. I could work with them, and I thought I could learn a lot about how to be a clinical neurologist. I had been uh, practicing at the University of Virginia on their faculty for a while. Um, but that was a job in which I was expected to write grants and do research, and I was not liking it. Yeah, grant writing is not fun, man. So I came here thinking, well, gosh, I'll put together a career a la carte. Ah. And so part, I will do clinical work, and I'll see how I can fold in teaching and communicating 
and if necessary, public speaking. So I ended up working with people at the university. I taught a graduate course in neuropsychology in the psychology department. And I ended up working out to have medical students, but especially residents who are at the University of Missouri, rotate with me in my clinic. So I had internal medicine residents in my clinic and neurosurgery residents in my clinic. And I came and met and talked with the neurology residents, physicians doing learning about these yeah. different topics. And, and, and I enjoyed doing that. And what you were referring to is one idea I had was um, I was going to go around and give talks. And I, I came up with a very clever title for my website. It was called Joel Talks. I remember there was a website. Yeah, I thought you had canned lectures on various subjects. Well, you I never got Joel that far. I had, the, I had the website. <laughs> Maybe we should revisit and this. I had, I had this naive idea that I would make a really snazzy website. And people would be on the web and they would say, well, this sounds interesting. And they would right. send me a message and I would come give them a talk. Right. right. I see. So that, but uh, I never really, I really never ended up taking it anywhere. Uh, and most of the teaching and the public speaking I've done has been a lot more organized. Uh, so I've, after six years in private practice, I joined the university and I've been an academic neurologist as a clinician educator. So I've done a lot of lecturing with medical students and residents and uh, I've done some lectures in the community, as you know, and yeah. and sometimes I've done uh, talks with lay audiences, people just for in interest, uh, yeah. church groups, things like this. Yeah. But I've I've done other public speaking as well. I gave the commencement address at the med school graduation a few years ago. That's a nice a honor. Of these kinds of things. Fantastic. Well, I'm hoping that we get talking about neurology a little more uh, a little more focused conversation here. That this will be helpful to the uh, my audience is the general public here, not medical students. Uh, so I'm hoping this will be of great interest. So I just want to finish your education here. You did a year of uh, in internship uh, in internal medicine, then you did your residency, which I you said was four years at University of Virginia Charlottesville. So the uh, neurology residency is four years. The four first years. year is the intern year. Okay. So I did that. I stayed in Illinois to do that. And then I came yeah. to do the three years of the neurology part of the residency at University of Virginia. And did you stay there for, stay there for your fellowship, too? No, my fellowship was down in, at University of Florida in Gainesville. In Gainesville, that's right. right. And you studied psychiatry, neuropsychiatry, behavioral neurology, neuropsychiatry, testing. I, I know I'm so getting it, all the names the, mixed up. The topic up. is cognitive neurology. There's, all this, okay. there's sort of an alphabet soup of different labels, but... Um, I've shied away from calling it neuropsychiatry, although some people do, because then I don't want people to get the wrong idea that I'm a psychiatrist. I don't pretend to have a psychiatrist's skills in mental health. Uh, but when we're talking about the overlap of brain, mind, and behavior, the niche that I've chopped off is when brain damage or brain dysfunction makes it so that your mind can't do the stuff it's supposed to do. So you have a memory problem or a language problem uh, or a problem being able to use executive function mm. caused by brain damage. That's the kind of thing that, that my subspecialty would focus on. So cognitive neurology or behavioral neurology would be the topic that we would refer to that by. Fantastic. Well, let's start to unpack some of those topics and let's, let's jump into memory. 
I used to be pretty good at Jeopardy. I wasn't good at the movie stuff, but when it was biology or mathematics, I, I was nailed those and I could get those answers really, really quick. I watch Jeopardy now. I know most of the answers, but they don't come out as quickly, Joel. I wouldn't win at Jeopardy now because I'm not going to hit that buzzer, you know, a microsecond before the other contestant. I'll probably come in a couple microseconds later. So what is normal memory decline, let's call it? I don't want people to think I'm, I'm, I'm a dotard, a dotard, and I, I, I'm not a good doctor, a good surgeon. I, I, but, but there's a, a, a sharpness of memory that I, I'm aware of. What is normal memory decline with age and what is abnormal or pathological? That's a deceptively hard question to answer, it yeah. turns out. But let me back up even further because I would not even use the word memory for the question. So let, let's understand that your brain, not just your brain, but One's hum, brain. Humans bra human okay. brains okay. have different networks, different brain regions that work together as a collected network. And one combination of brain regions forms network A. And another combination of brain regions forms network B and so on and so on. And your brain thinks that memory is something different than the speed with which you think. Or different than what you and I call language. We can carve up a person's mental capacities into different topics. Not just because they make sense to us as we study it, but they're carved up into different capacities because your brain carves them up in different capacities. This is what I got interested in back during that summer I was working with Mira Lezak between my freshman and sophomore year in, in Portland. So I didn't even have the right question. I'm not even looking at That's it from the right, right angle, That's right. am I? So one of the things I discovered that made brain damage such an interesting space to think as a psychologist is it allowed me to think about how thinking occurs by asking, well, what happens when it falls apart? Right. How, we can learn a lot about how human mental functions work by seeing what happens when a particular faculty fails or does less well. Of a knockout. Yeah. And it turns out one of the really interesting things in neurology, not just cognitive neurology, is the concept of dissociations. A big word that simply means there's a split. Mm. A split between what's retained and what's lost. So when I say the word, when I talk about memory as a cognitive neurologist, I'm referring to your ability to recollect an experience. So yeah. memory in, in a cognitive neurology point of view refers to remembering what you had for breakfast today. And not just remembering it as a semantic fact, but recollecting the experience. The experience, yeah. the gestalt. Right. And one of the interesting dissociations, and patients and families will often think that this is bizarre. How could it possibly be? Is they'll say, gosh, I, I have had such a change in memory because I can't remember what I just did. But things from long ago, they're the same. How weird is that? Right. It's not weird at all. And the reason it's not weird is that's the way your brain does it. And we know that your brain considers those two separate topics. 
because you could impair one and not the other. So when you say to me on the Jeopardy example, yeah. well, gosh, I have, I can still have a good answer. Uh, sorry, you're supposed to say the question, not the answer. Right, right. Which is the question? Which is the answer? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why they do that. What? It, what it's is a silly twist. gimmick? It's a you know? twist. Yeah. <laughs> but you say, gosh, I, I, you know, if I play Jeopardy at home and I think I could do it, I still am able to give the correct response. Right, just the speed. But I mean, the it's speed. there. So I would say that if that's changed in you, then what's changed is your cognitive processing speed. That's a separate isolatable domain of mental function that is not the same as being able to recollect an experience you had earlier today. Gotcha. Right? Gotcha. So the real question is, not just in any one particular domain, how do I know if I'm performing badly because I have a disease? That's right? where I'm That's going really with what this. you're going. That's where right. you're going. And the answer is that we, we know that by studying lots of people and looking to see what the pattern is. One of the things that's really important when patients or families or others are worried about these kinds of questions is that it's one thing to have the complaint. But it's quite another to get tested and get assessed for yeah. exactly the reason that you're pointing out. Because we're the, we're the wrong person to be evaluating it. Well, we're, that's also we're true. We're immersed in no, That's it. also true. But, okay. if you, but if you say, gosh, I'm just not as good as I used to be, the real question is not whether that's so. The real question is, did we expect anything different? Right. Is it just getting a little older, well, a little is slower? That the, is that I don't case? run right. fast either anymore. Right. So uh, we're here in Missouri, so we can think about Missouri things. So Albert Pujols came back to the Cardinals last yes, year. Yes, for a year. One I'm a Cardinals year. fan, and I'm really happy about that. And one of the great things about that is, not only that he performed well, but he did it at an older age. He was about, I don't know how old he was, 40-ish? 40s, yeah. yeah. So it's remarkable everyone recognizes that someone at that age could have a pretty decent batting average and hit a lot of home runs. Hit some home runs. Right. But no one would argue that Albert Pujols is a diseased man because he had a less good batting average last year than he did 15 years ago. Everyone recognizes that as you get older as a professional athlete, you tend to be less and less good over time. The people who hold on to their skills longer were all the more impressed precisely because it's because not expected. Because of that. Right? It's not ordinary. But no one would say, my God, he has a disease. He's an impaired human. No one would say that if he only uh, had a batting average of 200 or if he only had five hormones for the year. We would say, gosh... It's a shame that his skills have fallen off so well, so much. So we certainly accept the concept that there are age-appropriate changes. All right. Right? So how do you establish what the appropriate changes are? Right. So really how do I hard. know? Am right. I getting – my final thing is right. am I getting Alzheimer's, that's right. Joel? That's right. <laughs> so that, that's, that's relatively hard to know in part because the data we would use to answer that question are confounded by the fact that some of the people we rely on to get those data, some of the patients that we would study to get those data, probably without us knowing it, are diseased. Right. We've got this bell-shaped curve, and when you're comparing to a normal distribution, there's sick people in there. That's right. So if we think about a neurodegenerative disease, like Alzheimer's disease, this is a disease, the pathology of which exists for many years, probably decades, 
before you start to show symptoms. And as you know, when people start to show symptoms of that disease, it's not a sudden change. It's slow and gradual. In fact, yeah. it's slow and gradual enough that it's usually a year or two or three of those changes before people start to say, you know, we can't really ignore this anymore. I think it's really a thing. Because we're, we're not dumb and we compensate. We do. We have little tricks. Like when I want to wake up in the mornings, every morning's the same. I, I, I live in a, I, I work most days of the year and every day is kind of the same. It's kind of like a, a groundhog day. And I'll write down, what time do I have to wake up? Well, I've got this spot on my hand. It's, 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 <laughs> do I have to wake up at five or four or seven? When do I have to be in, you know? Right, it's a great example. And it's so, a little trick. So if I had Alzheimer's, I could still wake up and be at work at you eight might. because I had a I had a trick I had a a uh, mnemonic a mnemonic yeah that's right and the more you have routines the more the routines remember for you yeah so yeah. let's say hypothetically that a a person at age seventy five actually is succumbing to Alzheimer's disease a bit but no one really realizes that yet and let's say I as a scientist I want to find out. Well, what is a normal amount of memory loss for age? Well, if I'm going to do such a study, maybe I would test someone's memory. I would test their reaction times. I would test whatever the cognitive domains are. Okay. And I would average them together and come up with what the normal thing should be for age. But who do I put in my study? Right. How do I know who is a normal person who doesn't have a disease yet? And how do I know who is a person that is maybe in the beginnings of a disease and it's too hard to know? This becomes part of the difficulty. When I was at the University of Virginia, I talked with a, uh, another uh, professor who was doing some of this research. He was a, a person who did a lot of research in normal aging. And he did a lot of the studies that we rely on to know, well, what is normal with age? And I asked him, well, how do you decide who to put in your study. And I'm going to paraphrase, but what he essentially said was, well, I asked them, do you have a disease? And, I said, and the people says, no, good, you're in the study. <laughs> Normal <laughs> enough. <laughs> so with that issue aside, most of the studies on which this type of question rest, most of the studies examine people, do testing on people who the patient reports no cognitive difficulty, the study subject reports none. Maybe there's a they, a questionnaire, they ask, have you been diagnosed with this disease or that? Maybe an informant says it. And this is part of the importance of neuropsychology testing, like I learned from Dr. Lezak that summer. The idea of neuropsychology testing is we do testing on memory, we do testing on language, we do testing on a number of different domains, and then we go and consult comparative data. See, when we do that kind of testing, we don't have to guess what's normal. We've already collected data, we, the yeah. generic we. Sure. We've already collected data on thousands of people. So we and we powerful, say, well, how, what matters? Powerful norms. Uh, right. On some tests, defined. age matters not at all. Oh. On some tests, age does. On some tests, it matters how much education you've had. On some tests, education doesn't matter much or not at all. And so we are empirical about it. We find out what we would expect. So now when a patient says, gosh, I'm worried that my reaction time is not so good with these Jeopardy games I play at home. Right. Or, gosh, I, I bounced a check. I've never done that before. Or whatever the thing is that's concerning you or you're asking about. 
you come and report to the doctor, here's what I'm noticing, here's what I'm experiencing. And then you can do cognitive testing. And then we can say, well, uh, for a person like you of, with your age and your education, whatever the other demographic variables are that may turn out to have mattered, we will do this testing on you and we compare it. And what we do is we say, only if you are so far away from what we would expect for your age, only then are we going to say, this is not normal. So, we, so let's make this really practical. Somebody's noticing mom is a little forgetful, dad's a little forgetful, I'm a little forgetful, whoever the person is. When, when should one go to their doctor and maybe be referred to one with a, usually they're gatekeepers, they're the primary care doctor. When would someone, when would you recommend someone makes it to you for evaluation for possible dementia, the most common, which I believe is Alzheimer's? Right. So this is a really interesting question that is, I have to give a different answer now than I would have given even just a few years ago. Oh, some new so let's, stuff. Let's, I like let's it. Let's start with the answer I would have given a few years ago. Please. The answer I would have given a few years ago is, first of all, anytime you're concerned, you should feel comfortable to go to your doctor and, and talk about the concern. That's never something you should avoid doing. But if you're my next door neighbor and we're, stuck, we're over the fence and you're yeah. we're sharing information, <laughs> doc, fence, you know, right? what do you think I should do about this? <laughs> right, right, right. right. I would probably say that if you're still functioning well, if you're able to make it through the day by hook or by crook, you're managing your finances, you're managing whatever your job commitments are, you're able to get groceries in a reasonable way, make mistakes here or there, but you're basically functioning okay, then probably that's not someone that needs to be assessed much. Really? Part of why I would say that is that there's very little we can do about any of this. Uh, All right. Most of the diseases that are going to cause cognitive decline, like Alzheimer's disease, are so firmly entrenched. Ooh. The momentum behind them is so much by the time you have symptoms that you're really coming in at the very end of the story. It's really too late to do anything. So that, that was point. a few years ago. You, there wasn't that much we could do about it. Now that's starting that's to at least be something we can question. That's exciting. So, Please tell me more. So there are approximately 20 to 25 different medicines that are reaching a phase of development where they're close to the point where they can present data to the FDA. Saying they're in phase we three. Get, they're in phase three, uh, about 25 or so. And the majority of these are what are call, called disease-modifying therapies. What do I mean by that? So... If I'm getting older, and I'd rather not get older, and one of the ways people can tell I'm getting older is my hair grays, I suppose you could do a thing to dye the hair so it won't look gray. Right. But I'm not modifying the it's aging It's still process. gray in there, yeah. I, yeah, I, I'm you aging at the, the same gray. rate. It's You've just harder it. to tell, right? Right. And this is all we could do for some dementia patients. Uh, the medicines that existed would at most be able to mask the symptoms to a very, frankly, a very slight degree. The cognitive neurology equivalent of dying gray hair. But most of those 25 or so drugs in phase three development, meaning they're close to the point where they can go to the FDA and say, we're ready to start selling this drug. Most of those are actually disease-modifying. Drugs that it claim, at least, 
to change the actual process that is damaging the brain. Very exciting. If successful, what these drugs would mean, that it fundamentally changes what Alzheimer's disease is. So the, the best version of which, the best credible version of which, is that in the future, Alzheimer's disease may be a disease that you die with, not from. Not from. Right? So, uh, like famously, prostate cancer. You're right. You that's live a good example. Enough. Right, I agree, right, I agree. right, right. So famously, about a year ago, a little about a year and a half ago now, so in June of 21, a drug was released with great fanfare, marketed as Aduhelm. The generic is Aducanumab. And this was a drug approved by the FDA uh, amidst a good deal of controversy. Many people have read about it. And this is a drug that clearly did modify some of the pathology of Alzheimer's disease. The tricky thing is, however, that patients, it wasn't clear that patients were clinically better off for having modified that damage. There is a bit of controversy still as to exactly what is the underlying damage in Alzheimer's disease. Right. That issue aside, this drug clearly did modify that damage. It lessened it. The plaques, but, the tangles. Correct. Plaques, plaques. Okay. So the patients for whom this actually was done, and it in fact did help the plaques, the study could not come to a clear conclusion that symptoms were any better off for it. Now another drug has been under development and, and data have been released, published in New England Journal of Medicine just last month, that show that not only did this other different drug affect the plaques, one of the pathology changes that occurs in Alzheimer's, but symptoms were benefited. In other words, what happened was patients who got that medicine had less brain damage, and although their, their symptoms continued and still worsened, it was at a markedly less lit rate, 27% less. Wow, is this also a biological and antibody? An antibody-based medicine. Biotech. So the FDA is going to be asked to make a decision about whether to approve this drug under an expedited pathway next month in January. Uh, and there are maybe other mechanisms to get it approved later on in this next coming year. But again, there's another 20 or so drugs in various stages of development. Very the key thing with these drugs, getting back to your initial question, that person says, gosh, I think maybe I'm getting a little forgetful. The key thing with these drugs is the way they're working, the way at least we think they're working, only has a chance to help if we do it soon. In other Before words, the disease progresses. Exactly. If we wait until enough damage is done to the brain, then stopping that damage, what good does it do to stop something that caused past tense, that caused the brain damage, that is permanently removed? your cognitive capacities to the degree they have. What good does it do to stop that damage now? I suppose you could argue it's good for your future because it may not worsen much more. But it'd be far better to identify these pathologies, these damages in the nervous system, and give a treatment like one of these new drugs. Give it so that you never get symptomatic. Almost like the HIV drugs. You got the virus, but so. it's undetectable. Exactly and who cares? So. It's a very good analogy. You prevented the, 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 the damage later on. That's right. Now, as you know, with fusion, 
fusion power is always 20, 30 years away. Something that will change the world. And just a, a week or two ago, they had, they finally had ignition. Cold fusion. That, well, no, well, this is hot fusion. This is hot fusion. They were able to compress a, a particle of a, a capsule of deuterium and uh, tritium with lasers, and it made more energy than they put in. They said, we have ignition, right? But that's far from having a power generator. And it still might be, it's always 20, 30 years away. So I'm asking you to speculate. Do you have hope? And this is a total speculation. You don't have to put any, put down a, even a penny on this bet. Do you think that we understand uh, the pathology of Alzheimer's disease enough? And do you think they've found enough targets? And do you think they are, there are enough drugs in the pipeline that 20, 30 years from now, like when we get fusion and energy, we might have a cure or a significant treatment for Alzheimer's disease? I think we'll be able to do a whole lot better than we do now. I think cure is a tall order. Okay. Do we understand the pathology? We understand a lot more about the pathology. As I say, there are still debates to be had. There's a couple of different ways that we know for sure brains get damaged in Alzheimer patients. Some of the debate is whether that damage is a marker of the disease or is the causal thing that is right. making nerve cells not work. Right. There's a certain amount of work still to be done about that particular issue. But I am hopeful that, I don't know if it's 20 to 30 years, it might be less, mm -hmm. but it, it could be that timeline or longer that we are going to be able to intervene to allow whatever is happening that is producing diseases like Alzheimer's disease so that they will progress less and produce symptoms less. But there, there are a lot of incredibly difficult things still to be done to make that possible. And one of them is, when do we intervene? If we look at Alzheimer's disease as, one, as just one example of a dementia-causing disease, but a, the most common one. This is an extraordinarily slow-moving disease. So do I do something now when someone is 20 years old that, mo could, that could be a risky treatment, that would be an expensive treatment, that is a treatment that we only have so many resources to be able to give, right. an IV infusion that we give right. once a month? Right. Do I do that at age 20? particularly when we don't think that that 20-year-old was going to have shown symptoms of Alzheimer's until maybe they were 60, 70, 80. Right, and this infusion might be a $100,000 infusion. When do we do right, that? Right, right. Now, we've, we've had similar kinds of problems in medical care before. When do we start doing colonoscopies right. to screen against colon cancer? Mammograms. Oh, when do yeah. we do mammograms? Right. Do we do that on a five-year-old? Do we wait until someone's 72? Right. You can think about the, when do we start to do such things? Yeah. So it's one thing to say we should do preventive medicine. Who can disagree with that? Right. But the real critical question is when do we intervene? And what's mm -hmm. it worth to you? What risk are you willing to take to do an intervention? These issues aside, I think we're going to start to sort that out. I think some of these drugs that are in development now, that some of which will get approved, and which are currently going to be used to people who are at the very beginnings of having symptoms. Remember, that's not when their disease begins, but when they're first starting to symptoms of their disease. We know we should intervene with these people if we can. We're going to get smarter and better able to intervene with people like that a little bit before that. We're going to find, I suspect, a combination of so-called biomarkers, blood tests and other kinds of tests, 
to say this is a person who we think there's a reasonable probability will start having symptoms within X number of years. And as a community, we can debate and decide what we like about this. As a community, we can say, we're willing to put up with this amount of risk to help prevent dementia in the next X number of years. And I think that's where we will, we will eventually get at. Uh, but it's still going to be very tricky to know who we provide that, that kind of treatment to and how we're going to pay for all of it. Right. One of the things that was controversial about the drug approved in June of 21, Adjuhelm, was that it was being offered at a very expensive rate. Very expensive. $56,000 a year, Yeah, said the drug company. Yeah. And that's a, 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 an infusion, an IV infusion that would be given once a month. Right. So you also have to go to a place that does an infusion. That costs oh, yeah. money. And there would be other tests that would be, that would be needed. And how many kids could you save right. with that money with something cheaper? Exactly. Right, right, So right. We, we think in the United States, for example, there's probably about 6 or 7 million people with symptomatic Alzheimer's disease. Surely many times that number with, un, with asymptomatic uh, Alzheimer's disease. That is to say, their brain is accumulating the damage but with no symptoms yet. Um, should we give $56,000 a year for each right. of those individuals? You can do the math. Six or seven million symptomatic people right. times 56,000 per year. Billions. Uh, we, eventually, it's, it's unsustainable. Can we it's do that? Right, right, right. right. Um, on, on the other hand, guess what? Dementia is expensive too. Right. People with dementia have less good medical outcomes. Their care, their medical care costs more. They can't work anymore, and so they can't generate income. And they usually have caregivers in the form of one of their children or a spouse right. or someone else who now can't work or Family they pay disruption. people to do that. Yeah. Right. So doing nothing is expensive, but doing right. something also is expensive. Yeah. So these are things we all have to work out as a society. Now, I have a lot of topics I want to get to in addition to this one, Joel, but very quickly, let's say I think I have Alzheimer's. My memory. I go to. I end up going to a neurologist. How do you diagnose it nowadays? Or there, very briefly, how do you die? Is that the CAT scan of the brain? Is it an MRI? No, it's a it's a syndrome. Like so many things in medicine, it's a syndrome. And what I mean by that is, there's no one single thing. So leave me as a metaphor, please. Uh, the metaphor I like to use is apple pie. Now I'll bet if I sent you to the grocery store. And I said, come back with an apple pie. I'll bet you would always get it right. I don't think you're ever going to come out of the store with a, with a can of uh, spray paint. Right. And say, there I thought go. this was an apple pie. Right. And I'll bet every time you come out with something that you think is an apple pie, I'll bet it's an apple pie. Okay. But I defy you to give me a test that tells me, tells me this is an apple pie. <laughs> if you think about it, apple pies are not all the same. Right. Some are hot and some are cold and some are round and some are square and some okay. have a crust on top and right. some do not. And some are sweet and some are tart. And they all have apples. Uh, uh, That's true. But not all things with apples are apple pie. And somehow we humans are perfectly happy <laughs> with this syndrome concept. It's, it, it's a concept. In cognitive psychology, it's referred to as a construct. It's a concept. We're all perfectly comfortable with living our lives in this way. But somehow we suspend that understanding when it comes to certain things about healthcare and about 
medical matters and certainly neurology. So there is no one single test that tells me you have Alzheimer disease. It is a syndrome that has features to it that tend to fall together. So the way in which this gets figured out is I start by finding out what's the story. What's the story I'm trying to explain? So I need the patient or an informant to tell me, well, when did this start? What Usually was the children. <laughs> what, what, you know, what, what started this? Okay. You know, you get what, the history. What, how has it behaved over time? Now, is there a CAT scan in there? Tell me. So I thought the, I thought you get I thought you, you got in the that. tube. They show your brain is atrophied in this particular way, and say, "Hey, Grandma's got Alzheimer's." Well, not entirely. No. So it turns out that uh, the MRI or CT scan of the brain tells you a lot about how the brain structurally looks, but you don't care about that as the patient. You care about whether whatever I see on the MRI, if it explains the story. Okay. So I need still to know what the story is. Remember that the damage that's occurring in these diseases occurs with no symptoms at all for decades. So do you care about having damage that causes no symptoms inside your body? No one tells it. I don't, I don't give a darn. Who cares? It's like the person with prostate cancer, as you know, some right. forms of prostate cancer are incredibly benign things. Yeah. Leave it alone. Leave it alone. You could right? die of something else. That's right. So is it a kind of cancer? Yeah. Is that, is that a happy thing? No. No. But most people do just fine with that, depending on the kind of prostate cancer, right? So you're telling me the diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease is not necessarily clear-cut or black and white? Correct. Okay. So the, the current standard of care would be you get a history, and that really requires a good amount of back-and-forth discussion and appropriate question asking. You get a brain scan. There are certain changes I would expect on a brain scan. And in most cases, they're there. There's blood tests to check. And most important, there's cognitive testing. Okay. And part of why the cognitive testing, neuropsychology testing, is so important is there are patterns. Alzheimer's disease is an old friend. We know how it behaves. Uh, and the dementia it produces or the cognitive impairment it produces partially is distinguishable from dementia and cognitive impairment from other causes. Okay. So that that's gets, why we would do that part of the assessment. And that gets into real expertise and splitting hairs and all that stuff. And that's a little bit beyond uh, um, what I want to talk about today, um, beyond the, the layperson's uh, need to understand. Um, but that's very, very helpful that it's not a black and white diagnosis. You don't just get a blood test and, hey, your sodium is low. That, that, right. that's, that's a black and white test. And what, and what some people... Uh, will we'll know, because they read in, the, in newspapers and magazines right now, is that there are tests, including some blood tests that are being developed, that will, with reasonable reliability, tell you whether your brain is cooking that Alzheimer's disease damage. And so some people may have the wrong idea, that's all we need now. And what I'm trying to get across is, actually, that's not what you need. You need to know whether it's relevant. Again, I can be cooking that damage with no symptoms at all for many years. What you really want to know is, when you're not doing well in the Jeopardy questions, right. is that because of the Alzheimer problem? Or I didn't so get much you, sleep. Yeah, when you order a test, so I just used this line with the residents and medical students on my, uh, on my inpatient service this week. A test can't tell you that you should have ordered it. <laughs> a test can't tell you if its findings are relevant. So if you get that fancy new test, 
that tells you whether the pathology of Alzheimer's is likely to be present in your brain that doesn't answer the question you really care about. And the question you really care about is, if that pathology is in me now, is it now the time that it's becoming symptomatic, that it's causing me not to do well on Jeopardy? Right. We have some tests in infertility for, of the uterine lining that have been all the rage. <laughs> Does it make any difference is the real question. No, you need a gill. Uh, right. Because right. You, what, do you, what does that mean? You need a thinker. Yeah, this is You need is a person that you can use judgment and can use experience to say, now that I'm looking at all these data, here's what I think they mean. So when I gave that uh, commencement address at the medical school graduation a few years ago, this was part of the theme that I, that I uh, pushed. I said, listen, you're all graduating medical school, and you're going to go out in the world, and you're going to hopefully do good things. But if you think that all you're supposed to do as a physician is simply engage in these transactions. Patient comes in, they have this complaint, you order this test, you administer this medicine, you apply a set of diagnostic criteria that some group of experts voted on in a Hyatt hotel in right. Cleveland. Right, right, that's what they do. It. Said, yeah, right. This Consensus. is how this is how we're defining lupus now. Consensus, well, David. Mazel tov. Right. Good. Mazel Thank tov. you so much. All right. <laughs> if that's all you do, those though you have to do those things. The mechanics of practicing medicine involve those things. But guess what? Patients don't need that from me. They don't, they don't need that from physicians. They can get some of that same information, those same transactions without physicians. The mere transactions, the mere mechanics that clinicians provide is outsourceable mm. with computers, with um, other yeah. other clinicians in healthcare. Watson, could why tell do we you. need why do we need a physician? Okay, and what I would say we need a physician for is someone needs to help you understand what in the hell to do with any of this. Yes, it's judgment. Yes, it's experience assessment. We, we just saw that with the pandemic. Right. It, th this was really complicated. Yeah, and it turns out it was really hard to know what to do with a lot of the data of. Should we do this thing? Should we do that thing? Should we? Uh, what kind of medicine would be appropriate? Uh, what kind of be? We didn't know. And because it's shifting, it doesn't mean we're idiots. It means it's evolving. Right, right. This is why you hire a physician. If you if you want to build a house, you know what what do they really do? Take a hammer and swing it and hit a nail. I can do that. I'll hit my thumb some of the time, but I can do it. Is that really what they do? No, what they really, what the person building the house knows how to do is not simply the mechanics of how to build the house, but where, what he ought to try to do. What would be a good, what kind of wood should you use and what kind of wood should you not use? Right. Do you do this thing first or that thing first? So if I'm going to hire a contractor to build my house, it makes no sense for me to go to the house and say, hey, buddy, how come you're holding the hammer this way? You should do it in your left hand and swing like this and it right, should be... Right. If I think I can do it, then I should do it. Right. If I'm going to hire a contractor, it's because I need that person's expertise. Right. So you're talking about in infertility work, there's this test that people thought was so special and so forth. Yeah. But you, because you've been doing this for a while, you know whether that test is meaningful or not. You need to have dwelt with the matter, to have a certain amount of experience and judgment that you can't measure with a test no. to say, Here's what I think this means. Right. Because if, if, if we're not offering that, then we've really got nothing to offer. 
I, I try and teach the medical students and the residents that uh, are learning with me, learn the stuff, learn the things that you're going to be tested on, learn the different diseases and how to diagnose them. But that's not what we need you for. What we need you for is judgment, experience. How do you get Mrs. Jones to take her pills? If I just passively say to a patient or a family, here are the different things that could be going on with you. I don't know which one it is. Good luck. Or if I say to them, you know, here are three things you could, here are three medicines you could take. Which one do you want? And I'll prescribe it. Then I'm not doing them much any good. What's right. What's better is for me to be able to say, my judgment is that drug number one would be the best one for you. And here's why. When I've given it to patients, what I've noticed is this tends to happen, but not that. And there's only so much that you can spend time explaining, but you spend time explaining it. Right. That's what you really need the expertise of a physician for. It's not so much a diagnosis or a test or a medicine, although sometimes it's that. When you're hiring a physician, hopefully what you're hiring is judgment and expertise. And that's the stuff you can't get off the internet. That's the Amen. stuff if I'm building a house, I can't build it. I can do the mechanics. Well, I'm so glad you've, 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 you've brought this up, Joel. Very, very important. In fact, let me use another story to illustrate. Please, that. I this love stories. Story, this is a story not, not from me, but from a television show. So many people remember the television show MASH. Yes. Remember the show MASH? With radar and... Yeah. And, and yeah, yeah, so, yeah. So we're aging ourselves that we remember it. Some people... There's a character on the show. That, so the show takes place in Korea during the Korean War. And there's a bunch of doctors who are assigned to be there for the war. And they're doctors. They're not military people. So they're kind of a fish out of water. Right. And the show talks about how sad it is that war occurs and it's... Uh, there's there's messages being offered and it, it, there are values that are trying to be perpetuated and it was well written and there was some funny moments. And a character in the show at one point is Major Charles Emerson Winchester. Right? This man, the character is a superb physician, a bit of a jerk, self-impressed, yeah. arrogant. A British accent? With a bit of a bit of, he's from Boston and he has uh, a Boston a accent. Boston right, accent. Okay. right. But the character we're supposed to believe is a really talented surgeon and is really impressed with himself and yes. wants others to be impressed. But we know he also likes the finer things in life. Yes. And we have a sense as the audience that he's a redeemable character. There's, we kind of like him even though we, we recognize he's a bit of a jerk. And there's an episode where a soldier is injured and comes to the MASH unit where he's the doctor. And he's had terrible damage to his leg. And normally that leg would just be amputated. But Charles, because he's such a talented surgeon, manages to repair the vascular damage and put together the bones. And although it takes a bit of time, he saves the man's leg. And this yeah. is obviously a big quality of life thing. If you lose one leg, you're not going to be able to get around quite so easily. It's psychologically upsetting. It's huge. So, so he's very impressed with himself, Charles is that he saved the leg. The, the soldier also had damage in one arm, some ligament damage in one hand, not as big a deal, so he's not as worried about that. And he handles that too. So now the man is recovering. It's the next day. He's recovering from the anesthesia, and Charles, very impressed with himself, comes by to do his rounds and, and see the patient now that he's awake. 
and with a bit of wry humor talks about how he caught it. You caught me on a good day. I was able to repair ah. your leg. And he was expecting the patient to be very pleased and, and proud of, uh, of what had happened. Uh-huh. And he was appreciative. But at the same time, he notices, the patient does, that his arm is, in, is bandaged. What happened here? Charles says, well, there's been some damage there. It was really quite minor, but uh, I, I don't think that's going to be a big issue. He said, there's some ligament damage, and there'll be a certain loss of dexterity, but you'll still be able to use the hand uh, oh, quite well. Oh, I remember. Is he yeah. a violin player? No, piano. He was a piano player. Yeah. And oh, the, man, the man becomes this. devastated. Devastated. Right? Because he's a concert pianist. Yes. And this speaks to Charles. Because Charles loves music and, and these fine things. And he doesn't, and he suddenly, his, his heart sinks. Oh, I'm remembering Because this. he wants this guy to realize that his life is not over. The guy feels like his life his is life over. His life is over. And he, gets right? a, and he teaches them the, he says to him, the music of he the says one to hand. Him, right. He sa- right. He says right. to him, uh, there are all yeah. kinds of, he, he finds, that's right, there's a kind of music that was written, piano music that was written by a man who lost his arm in the World War One. A one-handed composer and he learned, player. Right, right. And he got, gets those for the, for the patient. And the patient says, what, I'm going to do a bunch of freak pieces? And he says, no, you don't get it. This yeah. is the key part of the scene. Okay. He says, you don't get it, Charles says. The point is not that you can play these freak pieces. The point is that you have a gift yeah. that I don't have. He says, you can teach. You can, you, you can use the baton. You can use the right. pens. Right. But you have already, he says, I have hands, Charles says. I have hands that make a, can make a scalpel sing. But I don't have the gift. More than anything else in my life, I've wanted to be able to play the piano. But I can't make the music. I can play the notes. But I can't make the music. And that really captures this important point I'm trying to make. Charles will never have the expertise, the gift in this case, of being able to play the music. He can do the transactional part. He can do the mechanics. He can push his finger on the piano, push the key down so it makes a C. But he can't make the music. So ideally, if a physician is any good at what he or she does, they can play the music. They're there not to give that transaction. They're there not just to play the notes. They're there to put it together and help the listener, patient, understand what all this stuff means. Make the music. Well, you got me all choked up, Joel. Um, That's Hollywood for you. <laughs> it imitates life. I'd like to talk about another A disease called autism. What is autism, Joel? <laughs> <laughs> can you make uh, can you make fusion in the next 10 years? I mean, that's a huge question. I, I don't even anticipate you to be able to answer it fully. Give me some idea what autism is. So, again, this is another disease that is more of a syndrome concept. Autism is a problem where a person has difficulty interfacing with other people, mostly in social contexts. Okay. And really what it highlights 
is how much we humans are social creatures and how much our brains give us very special capacities to handle socialness. And as I was illustrating before, you really understand this so nicely when you see what happens when it becomes impaired. Mm. You don't quite realize what something is until you see what it's not, what happens when you don't have it, right? right. So let's talk about socialness first. Please. So creatures on this planet that are social do extremely well. They do that because there's only so much that one individual can do. So a bunch of ants get together, yeah. right? And they can move things and they can build things, but no one ant can do any of that. Right. It's only because they get together. The real specialness of humans is not just that we're social, but we've been able to communicate and rely on each other with that socialness. So each of us can have a very unique skill and do a very sp small part of something, but benefit from it what everyone else does. So I have this yeah. cell phone. I haven't a clue how in the heck this thing works. Right. I mean, I know what buttons to push to right. operate my app, but right. I couldn't build a cell phone, right. but I don't need to. Right. Because others have developed that specialized skill. I don't need to understand why my car works or why how electricity gets to my house or how to make a pot or a pan right. or any or build a road or any of the things that I benefit from all the time. Our society, our civilization has depended on different people doing different things and we share, but no one person knows all things. So and what is it that's going wrong in the brain? So it turns out that for us to have that socialness, we have to get over a dilemma. And huh. the dilemma is, I don't know what you know. I don't know what you feel. I don't know what you think. And I also don't know if you're a friend or a foe. So wouldn't it be useful, since I'm going to depend on socialness, one of our special things as humans, wouldn't it be useful for me to be able to figure out and infer such things about you? If you know where there's a bit of food, I might be able to get. If you're an enemy, you have a rubber band, you're going to smack me in the nose. How am I going to know these things? So what we humans do is we develop ways to figure things out that allow social situations to be predictable and therefore less scary. So I learn that you are a friend and not a foe by facial expressions, by body language, by how close or how far apart you are from me, by the social turn-taking of when we speak, when do I pause and let you speak, and when do you pause and let me speak. Yes. I learn about that socialness by uh, whether you, you perform the roles I expect of you, or are you not performing those roles. These are all things we rely on so much that you don't even realize you're relying on. Don't realize it. So if you go into an elevator, so the concept here in social psychology is about, about social norms, uh, social conformity, uh, social scripts, and we all evolve and develop these things. And so uh, an elevator is a good place to illustrate this. If you okay. go into an elevator, think about that. It's an awfully small room. And you've got five or six of us in an awfully small room. Strangers sometimes. Right. So what do you do? You space yourselves out. You all face the front. Right. You all look at those numbers on the top. <laughs> I mean, why the hell do you need right. to, right? Right, right. So think about this 
What if you were to walk into an elevator where there's only one other person in the elevator? What if you were to walk up right close to that person, you're only an inch apart, and, 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 and face to face, and you just say and do nothing? My bet is that person would be really nervous. But you're not doing yeah. anything unethical. You're not doing anything you're illegal. Not touching them. Right. But you are violating social norms. Their space. We develop norms. Right. We develop ways to predict what other people will say or do. We come to rely on that. So you have brain systems that give you these capacities. Brain systems which, therefore, can get damaged or can fail. We think that in autism, these brain systems developed differently. In, so utero, ability, in utero, like well, that's what one of the questions being discussed. That, but that is a leading hypothesis. That's right. Huh. That in utero, actually, another podcast you should consider do, doing is with David Beaversdorf. I know David. Neuro, yeah, I know David, David is all well. over this. Yeah, and he's Isn't a big he autism Tom, guy. Is it Thompson Thompson Institute? Center? Right. Thompson Center. Right. Yeah, and the whole concept of what's happening during a woman's pregnancy in particular the concept of maternal stress when women are women are subjected to or experience a great deal of stress it increases we don't entirely understand why but it increases the possibility for having changes in the parts of the brain that allow us to do this socialness and so such individuals don't figure out and process social cues quite in the same way so it's harder not impossible but it's harder for them to function. And there's degrees of it. There's there a spectrum, it. right? Correct. To be a little off, and and I, I hear I may be wrong, but I hear Elon Musk may maybe somewhere on the spectrum. So well, he said so on Saturday Night Live. He said so. He said so. But but it is true that maybe there's a compensation in another part of the brain. Maybe in, so. In intelligence or work or, or or something. Maybe so. Maybe so. So is there a particular Thing, like like on a CAT scan or something, or in a test, I guess a physical test. I guess there are, so how, I guess there's, I have so many questions. Where is the lesion? Where is the problem? And how do you test for That's it? still being, where the problem is still being discussed. There is not a scan finding that typically diagnoses it. Uh, it is another syndrome concept. And it's based on a story and yeah. a history, but there are classic things that, uh, that the clinician uh, would look for. I should point out that this whole the concept is of a social cognitive network, brain regions that collectively work together in a network fashion that give you these social cognitive capacities. So anything that makes that network work less well could cause social cognitive impairments. We don't call all of that autism. For example, uh, people with traumatic brain injuries often get these areas damaged because of where they are in the brain and how the brain tends to move with trauma. And will they so develop... that's another reason people can have social cognitive changes. And will that be similar to autism? Can you get can a similar picture with a traumatic brain it injury? It sometimes can be. It, it sometimes can be. can be. But in those people, we know there's been a trauma. That's part of the story. Right, right. right. And, and the interesting thing with autism is quite often this seems to come out of nowhere. We don't understand why there was no mm -hmm. trauma. This is not this is a different mechanism right. in which the same brain areas don't develop or don't work in the correct way. And there are degenerative brain diseases, or for that matter, strokes, right. or brain tumors, and other ways that the brain can get damaged. 
So a really important principle of neurology is that symptoms come mostly from the where, not from the why. Symptoms come from where the system doesn't work. But it's so complicated. I, you so many places you can do it. Now, do you think autism is increasing in frequency? I don't know. I think that's probably something that people who study it would be able to answer quite well, but it's not in a topic I spend a lot of time seeing patients with, so I'm not familiar with the literature. But I, I think that it, it, my bet is it probably is increasing in frequency or it's being diagnosed more. Yeah, there's that, that bias that you're looking for it more. Somebody would just being been called odd right. in the old days. Right. Well, now that person's on the spectrum. Exactly. Well, it's interesting you talk about social dynamics and interaction. I'm reading a book right now the theoretic, by a theoretical biologist speaking is how did humans evolve so quickly about 40,000, 50,000 years ago? We may have been preyed upon by Neanderthals. And coming out of Africa, we met Neanderthals, and they, they ate us. They hunted us and ate us. I hate when and that happens. I hate when that happens. And apparently Neanderthals <laughs> were like six times stronger than we are. They were brutish, powerful. And with spears, they would hunt like lions and bears. They lived on lions and bears. They could take on a lion and a bear, right? And apparently, if this theory is correct, we figured out a way to beat them, which was communally. We were smarter. We worked together. We threw the better spears. We worked together. And we exterminated them. And we went through Europe, and we won all right because of our social... Mm. our ability to work together, which was superior to them. They might have been stronger and not necessarily less intelligent, but we had these social features, and as a group, we could mm. beat the Neanderthals back. So they're very fascinating. I'm not saying, but it kind of goes to why, why is that so finely tuned in our brain, and how was that selected for perhaps as recently as 40,000, 50,000 years ago? Very, very interesting. Um, I can buy that. So yeah, it, it, it's fascinating. It, it, it holds. It, it's not implausible. Um, so let me just put a finer point on autism. Let's say we have a child not behaving normally, have a diagnosis of autism. Do we have treatments? There are. There are. Be, I, I don't know them extremely well. There are behavioral treatments, uh, and there also are medications, uh, different kinds of medicines. Uh, there are some medicines that are helpful with some of the behavioral problems that can occur. Um, actually, Dave has done work to argue that propranolol, a very simple ah. medicine has been around a long time uh, for high blood pressure and certain heart patients. And anxiety. And anxiety. Has it's basically anti-adrenaline. Right. Uh, this medicine may actually have some benefit in autism. But a lot of the things that are effective is to identify someone early a human brain is still developing for the first 20 years or so of life. So plastic. It's movable. still plastic in ways that aren't later in life. And so insults to the brain or problems with the brain uh, that happen earlier in life are better tolerated. If I were to have a stroke as a five-year-old, which can happen, although that's quite unusual, uh, that person would probably have a much better outcome uh, 10, 20 years later than someone who's 55 who has a, a, right. a, the exact same stroke. Interesting. And so it, there are behavioral things to do with different types of cognitive stimulation, different types of lessons to be learned that turn out to have better outcomes than others. 
So people, when there are young children who are thought to be on the autist, autism spectrum, right. as you point out, spectrum, if they're identified, there are things to be done that will have better outcomes. So things can be done. There is hope there. Now, there's so many topics, Joel. Now, this discussion, I knew it would be long and fascinating, and I'm going to have to start focusing on just one or two uh, other conditions, and our, our time's going to be up. Um, can you tell me a little bit about epilepsy and seizures? When someone has a seizure, what's really happening is there's a kind of an electrical storm in the brain. Wow. So nerve cells are electrical. They're, they're simply firing an electrical signal. And normally each nerve cell is firing in a different pattern, and they're connected in different ways. And it's the firing pattern. It's the pattern of which nerves, nerve cells fire when that does all the computations that the brain is doing. So if a bunch of nerve cells get together and say, the hell with it, we're now going to all start to fire together. We're no longer going to follow the usual normal patterns. And a bunch of us are going to fire as if we're one big unit. And all of us are going to fire at the same moment at the same time. Then whatever circuit those nerve cells were a part of, that circuit isn't going to work correctly. Sure. Right. So if you get symptoms when that occurs, that's your seizure. So what makes a spell a seizure is not the spell. It's the cause. Okay. So it's a seizure if and only if the spell is caused by this kind of electrical storm. This is a really important point because people can have spells for all kinds of reasons. You know, if you hyperventilate, you can give yourself a kind of a lightheaded feeling. Right. If your heart goes into a different rhythm, that can give you a spell. You can have spells because you're very tired and you just fall asleep. Okay. You can have spells for psychiatric reasons, a kind of a nervous spell. The long list of things. None of them are, are seizures unless... What's happening is one of these electrical storms in the brain. Gotcha. So that, in a very simple sense, that's what a seizure is. And the reason is you're pointing out that different seizures can look differently is because it all depends on where it happens. Different brain areas differently contribute to different aspects of the mind and different aspects of behavior. So if I have a seizure in one part of the brain, because of where that's located, what I might experience is I might smell something. Or if I have an a seizure in another part of the brain, what I might experience is shaking. Or I might experience uh, a strange feeling like a deja vu. Or I might experience um, a tingling sensation. Mm. Or I might suddenly just stop talking and have no awareness of the world around me. I might have what used to be called grand mal seizures, where you collapse, you lose consciousness, both arms and legs shake, you may lose your urine, and so on. All the symptoms entirely and exclusively come from where in the brain is the electrical storm occurring. So that's what a seizure is. Gotcha. And you need a neurologist with their EEGs and their scans and all that stuff to make a proper diagnosis. Well, and in theory, others could too, but that's sort of a very bread and butter thing for a neurologist to diagnose. Right, bread and butter. Sometimes that gets pretty tricky. Uh, the good news with seizures is they often are really quite treatable. We have a large number of medicines that work quite well, but it's a little bit of uh, picking the right medicine for the right patient and the right type of seizure. It's a little bit of trial and error. Everyone's their own little case study. 
Right. And so finding a medicine that works takes a little bit of time and practice and uh, trial and error in, until one is found. But in many patients, uh, a seizure disorder can be nicely managed and you'd stay on a medicine or a treatment. There are other types of treatments as well. And it can usually be managed. Excellent. And is it fair to say that only a small minority of seizures are due to something terrible like a brain tumor or something? Correct. Yeah, because I don't want people to get scared. I want people to be able to feel comfortable going right. to a neurologist or, and right. not fear that, oh, my God, I've got some horrible brain tumor. No, I, actually, that's a really good point. So when I was a PGY2, my second year of residency, my son had a seizure. Uh, oh. And I knew just enough neurology to be dangerous. <laughs> right. <laughs> so he was two or so years old and had a fever. And we were traveling all night and he was you know, up late in the car and he was dehydrated from vomiting and he had fever. And these are all things that make a seizure more likely. And a fever-associated seizure is actually pretty common in kids. Okay. And so we went, we were in Columbus, Ohio, and we, we strolled into an emergency medicine department uh, in a hospital in Columbus. And the physician there gave me his little speech on seizures that I still use. Oh. And he made exactly your point, which is, Really, I don't care that much about seizures. Seizures don't worry to me, he, he said. He said, seizures are like having a fever. The real question isn't what do we do about the seizure. The real question is what's the cause? So I only worry, says he, I only worry about the cause. So unfortunately, sometimes the cause is something like a brain tumor. But the vast majority of the time, it's not. So a huge percentage of the time, a seizure is caused by uh, uh, your brain happening to be wired in a slightly different way. And it really doesn't matter unless a seizure occurs. And if it does, we've got medicine for that. As you get older, your brain acquires a certain amount of wear and tear. And so your brain may become rewired. Again, in ways that you shouldn't worry about or be bothered by. But it may be that that rewiring from the wear and tear carries with it a risk that one day your brain will know how to generate seizures. So in most cases, the cause of a seizure is usually a very easily understood, treatable, or benign problem in and of itself. Part of why we want to be involved as neurologists is to make sure that it's not a stroke or a tumor or meningitis or something right. more serious. But well, most of the time, it's not. Yeah, I've got so many things I want to talk to you about, Joel. And I wanted to talk about stroke and meningitis and all these things. We're not going to have time for that. So, Joel, since I'm getting older and uh, I can only keep my uh, attention span uh, focused for so long, I'm, I'm hoping to wind this talk down. There were a lot of topics I wanted to talk about. One last thing I wanted to ask you, talk to you about as a neurologist is something that, as a neurologist, you're either going to love or you're going to hate. And that is the topic of headaches. I do not enjoy trying to diagnose causes of headaches. I feel like I, I know just enough to be dangerous and I don't know enough to be informative. But a lot of neurologists specialize in headaches because it's a very difficult, complex subject. Can you give me your thoughts on headaches? Somebody has chronic uh, headaches, they go to their primary care doctor, the primary care doctor throws their hands up, tries a few things, says, you better see a neurologist. Are there some neurologists that enjoy taking care of headaches, or does everybody hate it? No, there are. Uh, there is a subspecialty in neurology where people focus on just headaches. You can get a 
special fellowship in that and get board really there's know? a board certification mm -hmm. in headache neurology that's right, that's right. oh that's great but to it's know. also the case that uh, neurologists in general headache would be a common thing that they would see patients for so you don't have to be a uh, exclusively specializing in it it's a bread and butter thing it's a very bread and butter thing yeah it doesn't you don't have to see a neurologist but you certainly can i would say that a, a large number of primary care physicians are perfectly good at diagnosing and managing headache problems. So let's talk about a couple of things with headache. Because the pain feels like it's within the skull, then it feels like this is a brain problem. Although quite often it's not. Ah. All right? Everyone worries that it's a brain problem. Um, and the brain is certainly involved in many headaches, but it is unusual that there is something structurally wrong with the brain, like a brain tumor or a clot in a vein. These can happen, these can be causes of headaches. But actually, most of the time, that person is a perfectly normal, healthy brain, and something is functioning in a way that you'd rather it not function. Uh, when, when I uh, run upstairs and I get short of breath, I don't have damaged, diseased lungs, I'm just fat. Right, I'm just right. unconditioned, right? And older. Right, so my lungs aren't functioning the way I would like to. There's nothing wrong with the lung. Similarly, the brain sometimes doesn't function the way you want. It doesn't mean there's a disease of the brain in a structural sense. So when we think about headache problems, how should we approach this? The most common problem, the most common mistake from a doctor point of view, uh, or to some extent patients as well, is that when there's a headache, we spend very little time thinking about cause. And we spend a lot of time thinking about treatment. Which right. makes sense. Because you're We're in, in pain. pain. We don't want to be in pain. Make it stop. So you take something to make it go away. And by the way, that works on a, lot of, a lot of the time. Right. So it's not a terrible idea. When a neurologist sees a patient for headache, that's been tried. And that's failed. Uh, and so what we're really doing, and other doctors could too, is we're taking the time to sit down and think through what's the cause. And we get to the cause of the pain rather than the treatment that knocks it out. Gotcha. So when a lot of people get into trouble and they come to see the neurologist, the trouble is no longer the thing causing the headache. The trouble is the treatment. The treatments they're taking are now as much of a problem as the cause of it was. So the first thing we want to do when we're considering a headache problem is to think, well, what's the cause? We want to treat the cause if we can or do things so it, it's harder for a headache to get started. Right. Because one of the common things is that most things that cause headache don't stop quickly. So it's very hard to turn a headache around and abort a headache. So a neurologist's focus is on preventing headaches. What can we do to prevent headaches? And we can crudely divide headaches into three categories. There's primary headaches, there's secondary headaches, there's a third category called face pains and neuralgias. Uh. So a primary headache is there's nothing structurally wrong. Mm -hmm. But your, your nervous system is doing something we'd rather it not chose to do. Okay. Migraine is the famous example of a primary headache. What's a secondary headache? Well, a secondary headache is not a neurologic problem at all. A secondary headache is your nervous system doing what it's supposed to. React. Your nervous system's job is to, t is to take an information, sometimes tell you about it, and sometimes do things about it. If you don't like it, it's not the nervous system's fault. 
It's you got a, reporting. You got an axe ax sticking out of your it's head. Truly, it's truly hurt. It's reporting a noxious stimulus right. as it's supposed That's right. to. There's as nothing it, wrong. There's nothing wrong with my nervous system when I have the pain of a heart attack. Right, right. right? It's, it's working really, really well. Thank right. you. And the third category, in part because it's managed differently, face pains and neuralgias, is a nerve may be mechanically irritated, like in trigeminal neuralgia, yeah. or occipital neuralgia. These are some of those. So. There is a group that has tried to divide up all the different types of headaches and give you rules for deciding which headache this person has. And it's a series of um, diagnostic questions that you ask, and you categorize the headache as headache type number one or two or three. It's called the International Headache Society. It's an international body, and they have a current working document that gives the clinical criteria for diagnosing all the headache syndromes they recognize. By the way, let's play a game. Please. How many headache syndromes do you suppose they came up with? Two dozen. 317. Ah! <laughs> why so, am I not surprised? So part okay. of why managing <laughs> headaches is tricky is that what everyone tends to assume is it's all migraine. Right. But in fact, there are a large number of headache syndromes. Now, many in that 317 are esoteric. They don't happen very much. About 10% of that 317 are migraine variants. Ah. But they all behave a little differently, and how you manage them, how you prevent them, is a little different. So to a neurologist seeing a headache patient, they start by saying, my gosh, I wonder if this isn't migraine after all. Is it a different type of headache syndrome? Or if it is migraine, which of the 30 or so migraine variants is it? And what things have been tried? And to what extent are the treatments actually starting to cause the problem and so on? So if you take in a very systematic way, treating and managing patients with headache is actually a fairly doable thing. When I was a resident, I did not like seeing patients for a headache complaint. But at that time, I was very new to being a neurologist. And the patients that end up in a resident clinic, um, all the attendings in the department have already taken the patients for their own specialties. So the patients that end up in a resident clinic often are patients that don't easily slot into another yeah. attending. And so you often saw less clean cases, yeah. much harder ones to figure the out. tricky ones. So I had the wrong idea that most headache patients were really hard to figure out. When I came to Columbia and I entered that private practice, which I was in for six years, I learned an awful lot about clinical neurology. And one of the things I learned early on is headache patients are actually, I found, very satisfying because we can almost always help. Cure, probably not. We can almost always come up with a better way to prevent and abort headaches than they were already getting uh, by having a systematic approach, by thinking about what their actual diagnosis is, and then coming up with better choices of medicines to prevent and, and treat them. That's wonderful. That that lets me end on a very optimistic note, uh, Joel. Obviously, when you get familiar, it, I love this expression. It's it's circular logic at its worst. It says, "Anything is easy if you know how to do it." <laughs> <laughs> right. So I'm sure, like warp drive in Star Trek, you know, it'd be easy once you know you got the 
lithium to dilithium crystals, it's real easy. I right? can't do it, Captain. She's breaking up. For breaking up. <laughs> I'm giving it all she's got. <laughs> <laughs> well, Joel, there's so many topics. Uh, maybe we should have another chat sometime. But I think we covered some of the highlights of uh, of neurology and also the uh, the mindset one has to have to be a, a, a truly um, superb, uh, you know, excellent physician. So I really enjoyed our conversation today. I will have to give David Beversdorf a, a, a call. We'll have a, a podcast on uh, on also on um, autism with him. Uh, I will look him up and do that. So, uh, Joel, thank you very much for your time. It's been a pleasure talking to you, and, and I really appreciate you coming on the show today. Thank you. Thank you, Joel.